Hey there, I'm Matt Walker, the host of the Choir Director Corner podcast. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I'm so excited you are here. Before we dive in, I want to tell you about a one-of-a-kind online resource for choir directors, and it's called the Choir Director Corner Community Membership. This membership was designed to give you the training, the resources, the support, and the community you need to be successful in your teaching. Inside the membership, you'll find online courses, which will help you polish your current skills, as well as learn some new strategies and techniques, a PDF resource library with over 50 PDFs and Google Docs that you can use in your daily teaching and workflows, monthly collaboration calls where you can ask questions, get feedback, and collaborate with choir directors just like you, and access to our recommended repertoire videos and repertoire lists. There's even a private Facebook group which gives you another place online to collaborate with other choir directors and ask questions. Being a choir director doesn't have to be a DIY endeavor. It's so much better when it's done together. So head on over to choirdirectorcorner.com forward slash membership and join us in the Choir Director Corner community membership. Again, that's choirdirectorcorner.com forward slash membership. All right, on with today's episode. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Choir Director Corner Podcast. My name is Mount Walker. I am your host. Thanks so much for stopping by and joining me for today's episode. And this episode comes out, we are now in February of 2023. So we're a month in, my friends. I hope that 2023 is off to a rousing start for you. And in today's episode, I am sharing a bit of a conversation that I had with Matthew. Matthew is one of our Choir Director Corner community membership members. And one of the perks of being in the membership is we have group collaboration calls via Zoom, but I also do a number of one-to-one coaching calls. And so uh, Matthew contacted me and wanted to uh, pick my brain about a few things going on currently in his choral program. Matthew uh, teaches ninth through 12th grade choir, so he's secondary choir program. And one of the things that we talked quite a bit about was his use of music literacy in his program and how he can develop a deeper retention of those skills amongst his singers. And so we talked quite a bit about, you know, what he's currently doing. And so many of the things that Matthew was doing was exactly what I would uh, advise him to do. Like he's doing all of the right things, but still was sort of struggling with uh, some of his classes and one class in particular about retaining those music literacy skills, right? From rehearsal to re- rehearsal to week to week to month to month. It it just wasn't clicking. It just didn't seem to stick. And it reminded me of uh, one of the books on my recommended reading list, which is called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. And if you dive into that book, there are a number of themes uh, and just a a number of tenets where uh, 
you know, some of the things that we used to think about learning aren't really quite as productive um, as we thought. And then there's some also some things that maybe are a little bit more counterintuitive uh, when it comes to making things stick, which is exactly what Matthew and I were talking about was retention. And as we talked about retention, you know, there were a certain number of things that came to mind that were very important uh, in my past experiences uh, of teaching choir. And I had gone through a point in one of my previous programs where I was teaching an eight-period day every single day. And then sort of suddenly, uh, maybe it wasn't a sudden, uh, <laughs> it seemed very suddenly, uh, where we switched to block scheduling. And it was still eight periods. And so they would have periods one through four on Monday, and then periods five through eight on Tuesday. So you had a longer uh, amount of time that you were meeting with your students, but it was only every other day. And so sometimes you would only see them Maybe you were lucky you saw them three times a week, but usually because of varying schedules and things like that, uh, you only saw them two times a week. And that was a lot different going from uh, a rehearsal every single day. And one of the things that really suffered was retention. And so I really started to narrow down, okay, what were the things that were uh, absolutely essential to um, having my students retain things from rehearsal to rehearsal. And I think a lot of these things also apply to how we are practicing, how we are using music literacy. And really when I'm you know, saying using music literacy, I'm re what I'm really referring to, for me anyway, is Soulfish, you know, as well as Takadimi, using Takadimi as well uh, in our choir rehearsals. But really, um, Soulfish is the, the one tool that we use uh, on a regular basis. And so talking with Matthew, you know, my advice to him where, you know, focusing on five things or really five essential tips uh, in order to increase that retention from rehearsal for, from rehearsal to rehearsal week to week month to month right and so you didn't feel like you're always spinning your wheels and having to go back and reteach certain skills and certain concepts and so tip number one for really making music literacy stick uh, with your singers number one was by far and away consistency and so I'm still kind of surprised at how many choir directors I talk to um, who just sort of dabble in using Soulfish in their rehearsals. Yeah, and they're like, well, maybe I use it two to three times a week. Um, or, you know, maybe I just use it at the beginning of class, right? And then we don't really touch on it as we go through the rest of the rehearsal. So I'm going to make a comparison to a foreign language, right? Because music is in many ways a foreign language for our students. And with a foreign language, we don't want our students to get just to a basic understanding, basic knowledge, but we are, what we really want them to get to is fluency, right? And so imagine if you only had your foreign language class twice a week 
instead of, you know, every foreign language class that I've ever taken, it was for a period of time every single day, right? So we had that consistency from day to day to day. And so if you're maybe dabbling in your use of soulfish, oh, maybe we use it a couple times a week, but you're not really happy with the results. This would be the first thing by far and away is that you have to be consistent with it. So using it every single day, every single rehearsal, and just getting your singers used to this is what we do. Right. And for beginners that come in maybe to a beginning level ensemble where they've never used that before, there's going to be some pushback there. Right. Especially at the beginning. And they're probably going to question you as far as um, why it is that we are are using this. Right. And I think it's OK to um, explain your reasoning once. But then after that. Really what the answer for me becomes, this is how we do it, right? For those of you old enough to know the old Montel Jordan song, this is how we do it. Yep, that's what we're talking about, people. This is how we do it. This is how, and you know, I expand on that a little bit more. This is how we get you to be an independent musician, right? And I'll have that conversation multiple times in a year, it seems like, especially with my younger students. It's just like, my goal is that when you leave here, you know, if it's a, a ninth grader, my goal is when you leave here in four years is that you will be 100% an independent musician. You don't need me anymore, right? What a lovely concept, right? But these are the tools, talking about soulfish, talking about Takadimi, studying music literacy, how to read music. These are some of the tools that you are going to need in order to be an independent musician. And that's the end of the conversation, right? This is how we do it. Yeah. So building that consistency. And I do hear from some people, Matt, I really don't have time to do that every single rehearsal. I just can't afford to do that every single rehearsal. And my response is, you can't afford to not do it every single rehearsal. Because if you invest in this and do it consistently, it's going to pay off huge dividends in the end. Not only for the ensemble as a whole, not only for you uh, in how you were able to teach, but for each individual singer. So number one, by far and away, consistency. Tip number two for helping you really make music literacy skills stick with your choir is the use of music literacy really needs to be widespread. If at all possible, making the practice of music literacy involved in really everything that we do. And I've talked with choir directors previously where I ask them about, you know, how are you using Soulfish or Takedemi or whatever your system is? How are you using it in rehearsal? They say, well, we do our sight reading at the beginning of class. And I say, okay, what else? And there's a pause there. It's like, well, that's really all that we do. We just use it at the beginning of class. We do our, we do our, our sight reading example and then we move on. And so, again, this is sort of like um, my high school <laughs> Spanish experience where we did, you know, a little bit of 
actual conversation at the beginning of each class, but then we only did, you know, for the bulk of each class, it was just kind of reading and writing. And so when I did have the opportunity to uh, go to Spain for uh, a week in high school with my Spanish club, um, I really struggled with the conversational part of it. Um, because, you know, we did a little bit at the beginning of class, but then we didn't really use those same skills the rest of the time. And with music literacy, and again, referring to Soulfish and Takadimi, that's sort of the same thing. We're missing a big opportunity if we're just doing a little bit at the beginning of each class, right? There are so many more opportunities with all the other different things that we do where we could really be giving our singers the opportunity to practice these skills a lot more. And the more that they practice them, again, that depth of learning is going to increase and that retention is going to increase. So, Consistency is great, but you know that's just sort of from day to day, rehearsal to rehearsal. Now build on top of that, how are some different ways that I can expand our use? And the more widespread the use of these music literacy skills can be in your program, the greater the retention is going to be. So that's number two. Number one is the consistency, and then number two, using these music literacy skills in a very widespread manner, right? Really embedding them into as many things as possible. Tip number three is having a standard mode of operations. And going back to the book again, Make It Stick, this is something that they talk about in this book in that if students have a basic understanding of the rules or guidelines of how to solve a problem, then they will be more successful at solving uh, those types of problems in the future. And so one of the things that I started doing a number of years ago, um, particularly with my beginners, because my beginners were coming in and we would start in with the fundamentals of, of sight reading and they really, they really just seemed overwhelmed. And I think it was because they really didn't even have the concept of how to, uh, for lack of a better term, how to attack the problem, right? They really didn't have a plan of attack. And so I started talking to them about, okay, well, as a singer, here's how I would go about attacking this example, right? And it started with a soulfish example at the, at the beginning of class. And that then going through that process, we started to then formulate sort of a, a plan of attack. And this is the plan that I walk them through every single day when force, uh, when uh, given a, a piece of music or given a, a soulfish example. We'll say, okay, we go through the process of finding dough. And sometimes for my beginners, I, you know, I don't even, I skip that. It's just like, your first note is dough. Okay, now based on that, going through and finding your instances of dough in the example. 
Then we go through and we find our instances of me and so. We identify our highest note and our lowest note. Uh, we, if there's like two, visually two lines, like a top line and a bottom line, like often there is if you're projecting this onto a screen, uh, I would say identify from the end of the first line to the beginning of the second line. What is that? What are those notes and what is that interval? What uh, rhythms, if any, pop out at you as maybe could be potentially challenging? Are there any large jumps as far as intervals go? And then finally, you know, are there any intervals that would require uh, a modified syllable? Now that gets into the advanced ones, right? I'm certainly not dealing with that with with my beginners, but walking them through this process. And the idea is that the more that we do it, the more quickly I want them to be able to get through that process, right? And so when they're given a new piece of music, I can say, okay, measures one through eight or measures one through 16, right? I don't have them do the whole piece, but having them take a chunk at a time. Scan through this. Use your standard mode of operations. And then we go through and we have uh, the singers sing each part together, right? And so giving them the standard mode of operations, it gives them a plan of attack, right? And again, getting them closer to musical independence. So now you know, with my ninth graders where, you know, we're halfway through the year, if you give them something, they're not nearly as overwhelmed, right? They might still be a little overwhelmed, but at least now they they have a plan, right? They know exactly the process that they should use to go about solving that problem, right? Um, and again, you know, using a, a sub, uh, an example from a different subject, you know, talking about math, right? My daughter this year is in Algebra 2 and solving different types of equations, right? Like, oh my goodness, it's been like 20 years since I've had to do this, maybe more. Um, and I'm pretty sure we use Khan Academy a couple of times. <laughs> but with different types of equations, what do they give you? Well, they give you a formula, right? Quadratic formula, for example. Well, what is that formula? Essentially, it's a step-by-step -step process of how to solve that type of problem, right? It's a standard mode of operations when you're given something like this. And again, when the, you know she's seen equations that are similar to that, obviously they're not exactly the same, but they're similar to that. She has a standard mode of operations, a plan that she can use to solve that problem. Using our music, our soulfish examples, our pieces of repertoire, it's the exact same thing right? And so it doesn't have to be the same thing that I do, but giving your singers that standard mode of operations they can go back to, that standard process that they can use to break things down, to pick it apart, right? And to figure it out for themselves. That's a huge piece of this retention part, right? So that's number three giving your singers a standard mode of operations that they can use to practice these music literacy skills. So tip number four is approaching music literacy skills from a wide variety of angles, 
right? So oftentimes the one thing that we see singers do is you present them with again this sight reading example and so then they go through the process of in their minds figuring out the syllables and then they sing it together as a group right oftentimes that's the only way that singers are practicing these skills and so I would say to uh, us as choir directors, what are some other avenues? What are some other methods? What are some other angles that we could approach this, for lack of a better term, problem from, right? How can we uh, have our students practice these skills in different ways, in different modes, right? Certainly there's the ability to write, you know, giving them uh, a melodic example and just having them identify the syllables and writing them in, right? Even with my very beginners, we'll even approach our repertoire like that. Now, I want them to get through that process relatively quickly, right? Because eventually, all they're really doing is they're not looking at the notes on the staff. They're looking at the solfege that they have written in, right? But in the analysis part of this process, right, they have to be able to analyze. And so there's certainly some value in the physical practice of writing those syllables in. But oftentimes we'll just do a, a separate worksheet where I have some examples on there, right? So it's not necessarily in their repertoire, but they are going through the practice of uh, analyzing those intervals uh and analyzing them and identifying the soulfish syllables that, that go with them, right? There is the uh, possibility of using hand signs, you know, kinesthetic movement, right? What about creating, right? Creating part of the national standards. In what ways could we have our students creating that would give them the opportunity to practice their music literacy skills, right? I just did uh, the other day, um, I've been wanting my singers to use hand signs more in class. Um, many of them come in with sort of a basic knowledge of uh, the soulfish syllables. You know, they kind of understand what that process is, but a lot of them don't have uh, a whole lot of practice with the hand signs. And so I did an exercise where I would sing a four note, four note pattern and I did the hand signs with each note and then they had to echo back to me where they had to again also sing and also practice the hand signs. Well then without telling them eventually I stopped singing but I would still do the four note pattern with my hand signs, right? And they had to echo back what I was signing. They had to sing that back to me, right? And at the same time, do the hand signs as well. So it's incorporating some kinesthetic movement, right? Um, in a way, it's sort of similar again to our foreign language example, where there's there's some form of translation going on there, right? Where they're having to essentially translate on the fly the physical hand sign that they are seeing with the soulfish and then the pitch in their brain and then having to sing that, right? 
So, and that's just one example of getting them to practice some of these skills in a different way, rather than just seeing uh, the notes on the staff and analyzing that way, right? Both skills are incredibly important. And now I've gotten to the point where in rehearsal, I can show them a hand sign with my hand and they know what note I'm referring to, right? If there's a specific spot where they're consistently singing me instead of Ray, when it gets to that point, I'm showing the altos or I'm showing the soprano twos, I will show them Ray with my hand sign to remind them that they're supposed to be singing Ray instead of me in that particular spot, right? So lots of different ways that we can approach these skills of music literacy. It's not just seeing uh, a melody on the staff and then, you know, analyzing it, singing it back, right? There's lots of different ways that we can do this. And again, the more that you can approach this from different ways, it's going to make them use their brain cells in a little bit different way. And that is going to help build this musical fluency that we are aiming for. So that's number four. In what ways can we approach these music literacy skills in uh, different ways? Yeah, in a wider variety of angles. That's kind of how I would like to say it. So that's number four. And then finally, tip number five is assessment. Now, before we freak out, right? Because you're like, Matt, I don't have time to grade 120 recordings, right? Or however many students you have, right? <laughs> this can be formal. This can be informal, right? Doesn't have to be graded. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge burden to us from the grading perspective. But um, the more that we can incorporate just little bits of assessment in different ways, this is going to help solidify some of these music literacy skills. Yeah. In the book, Make It Stick, they call this retrieval practice. And they discuss, the authors, how real learning, it's not necessarily through repeated practice. It's what they call retrieval practice. And retrieval practice basically is any format, any sort of quiz. So they give the example of, say, in a history class, you know, a history teacher assigns four pages to be read for the next day, right? And what they have found is that instead of having a student reread those four pages four or five times, they're better off reading it once and then quizzing themselves, right? And so it's the practice of retrieving that information. That is where the magic happens. Because somewhere in that process of having to retrieve that information multiple times and in different ways, that is what leads to a deeper understanding, right? That is what gets our students from basic understanding to fluency. 
And again, this doesn't have to be some elaborate assignment, right? It can be very basic, doesn't have to be graded, but in just some sort of way, having your singers sort of put themselves on the spot a little bit and really check to see what their true knowledge, what their true understanding is. One of the examples in this book that's given is it can be as simple as flashcards, right? And having your students, you know, whatever the concept is, maybe it's note identification, right? With solfege, we're giving them flashcards to quiz themselves, right? Now, the key with flashcards, they say, is just because they get one correct once or twice, it doesn't mean they should set that flashcard aside and think that they know it, right? There's this, uh, uh, what they call an illusion of knowledge, where oftentimes we uh, have this illusion that we really know something more concretely than what we really do. So they say, no, it needs to be done a number of times before you can really be sure that you know it. So that's kind of a, an example to go along with, uh, with flashcards. But giving them small ways and different ways where they can practice this retrieval, right? And so whether it just means, you know, different exercises, di different activities, um, you know, playing different soulfish games, you know, whatever the case might be, putting them into situations where they really have to retrieve that information, right? And really, essentially, what it comes down to is quizzing themselves, right? And you don't have to term it that way because goodness knows we tell uh, our students that they have a quiz or a test and they just freak out, right? But giving them some exercises and activities doesn't really matter what it is, but giving them, as the book calls it, that retrieval practice where they have to uh, literally retrieve that information, putting them in a situation where they have to go and figure out the problem, right? That is where the magic really happens as far as retention. And again, developing this deeper understanding and going from this basic understanding to fluency. So that is it, my friends. Those are my five tips for making our music literacy skills stick with our singers. Again, consistency, yeah, using music literacy in, in a very wide variety of ways, making sure that our singers have a standard mode of operations when it comes to uh, reading music, uh, approaching music literacy skills from a wide variety of angles, yeah, differ, uh, differing really uh, the activities and the exercises that we do, forcing them to think about these skills in different ways and practice these skills in different ways. And then finally, assessment. And going along with, you know, the importance of retrieval practice, sometimes it does help to have a graded assessment, right? where um, there's been this huge move uh, in schools about not grading homework or certainly decreasing the percentage uh, of a student's grade that homework goes towards, right? And 
I, I am okay with that, but I think the problem is we need to make it really clear to our students what skills will eventually be assessed. So on that formative assessment, whatever you are using, you know, that thing that is 60, 70, 80% of their grade in the end, we need to be very clear of what those things are and what they are going to have to be able to do, right? And so sometimes when we're decreasing this amount of homework or we're not um, giving that percentage to the grade uh, for homework that we used to, sometimes that decreases the motivation of our students, right? It's like, well, if it's only 10% of my grade, why should I do that? I mean, and I don't blame them, right? If I have a portion of my grade that's 90% and the other portion that's 10, I'm going to give a lot less importance to that 10%, right? That only makes sense. But by using assessment and by um, communicating to our students, in the end, this is going to be your assessment. This is what you're going to have to know. This is what you're going to have to do. That oftentimes will increase that motivation of that daily practice, right? Even though they're not being graded on that daily practice, which in many ways, we're covering that with other aspects of our grade, right? Uh, rehearsal performance and rehearsal skills and things like that. But if they know in the end that there is going to be an assessment involved where they're going to have to know uh, that material, they're going to have to be able to do those things proficiently, that is going to increase that motivation on the daily practice as well, right? So just a last little bit about assessment. Well, that's it for today's episode. I hope you got a lot of value uh, out of the topics uh, from my conversation with Matthew. And again, Matthew is a member of our Choir Director Corner community membership. And one of the perks uh, of being in the membership is having access to these group Zoom calls, as well as having the ability to set up one-to-one Zoom coaching calls with me as well. So if you think that that might be something that you could uh, really take advantage of and really benefit from, then I would encourage you to head on over to choirdirectorcorner.com forward slash membership and check out the Choir Director Corner community membership and see if that is something that would really help you grow as a choir director. Thanks again for listening, my friends. And until next time, keep being awesome. Are you looking for resources that will save you time and frustration? Want to dive deeper into topics related to your teaching? Then check out the Choir Director Corner community membership over at choirdirectorcorner.com forward slash membership. <laughs>